Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to everyone again. Um, <clears throat> I know it's been said before, but you're very welcome here uh, in this place and also online. Uh, so as Bone said, uh, my name is Emma. Um, you might wonder why I'm up here. I have asked myself that question. Um, but today we are um, going to be speaking about Hinduism. <clears throat> and I'm going to give you a load of caveats first in terms of my knowledge of Hinduism. Um, I am, you might tell from my accent that I don't sound that Indian. Um, actually, I was born in the UK. Um, my parents uh, are from India and they moved when they, uh, shortly after they got married to the, uh, to the UK in a place called Wales. And, uh, but all my extended family is uh, still to this day in, in India. <clears throat> and so growing up, most of my childhood school holidays were spent in India. <clears throat> we're from the south of uh, India called Kerala, which is actually predominantly a Christian state. It's the only predominantly Christian state in India. Uh, and so actually I grew up in a fairly high church kind of environment. It was called a Mathama church, which is a Malayali church. That's the language of the the country there, of the state there. Um, but when we were in the UK, we went to a fairly Anglican high church kind of um, church, and that's my, kind of my background. But suffice to say that I really grew up in a kind of Indian environment with Ing Indian values. Um, and we were taught as children, my sister and I, to learn and read lots about Hinduism. We had storybooks as children. Uh, we had lots of interaction with Hindus. Um, and really even growing up, so when I went to university, one of my really good friends who um, ended up being <clears throat> co-president of the Law Society with me, he, he was also a Hindu and a really good friend of mine. And we'd spend many a day talking about Christianity versus Hinduism. Um, and really that's the extent of, of my kind of knowledge of uh, Hinduism. And I'm sure that even amongst you here or maybe online, there may be better people who feel better placed to talk about Hinduism than me. Uh, so I pray that you would just give me some grace in just bringing this message um, today. I think the aim really is just to give you an accurate but fairly general overview of Hinduism in the limited time that we have available, um, but also to see how it compares to Christianity and also what we might be able to take from Hinduism as well and how we can uh, maybe apply some of the good things that they adopt in our faith. Uh, Hinduism is the third largest religion in the world after Christianity and Islam. And you can see that there are many famous people who are attracted to it. So you'll be able to see Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook. You can see the late Steve Jobs, founder of Apple. You can see Julia Roberts. She became Hindu, I think, after filming, or was certainly interested in Hinduism after um, filming Eat, Pray, Love. Not sure if you've seen that film. Um, there's Sly Stallone there. <clears throat> Hugh Jackman, one of my favorites. And of course, uh, Madonna. Uh, and so there are over 1.2 billion Hindus worldwide, the majority of which are in India. And it's said to be the oldest religion in the world around 4000 BC. And I think Hindus would probably say that actually it's uh, far older than that because in a sense, it's an evolving religion. Um, it doesn't have a, a founder in the same way that Christians would say that everything is focused and centered towards Jesus. Um, there isn't a kind of founder in that same way. And so I think Hindus would probably say that it's timeless in that sense. <clears throat> and um, 
If you were there when Cephas was preaching about the African tradition religion, um, I think the same kind of applies with respect to Hinduism. There are many ways of Hinduism, uh, and it really depends in terms of background, your culture, where you're from, maybe what your parents have even taught you. Um, and so individual experience really greatly differs from person to person. So even in preparing for this talk today, um, speaking to various people, there are very many different things that have been said. Um, and so today I just want to pick up some common themes um, that we can maybe just kind of look at. <clears throat> so on the next slide, um, I, I just wanted to put some like first three pointers in terms of where I think Christians broadly, very broadly, agree with Hindus. The first is called samsara. And this is really the notion that entrapment, that we are entrapped in this endless cycle of birth and rebirth. And some people call this reincarnation. So the, the, the soul is reborn over and over again, according to the law of action and reaction. There's no clear beginning, there's no clear end. And so there's this transmigration, which is the kind of movement of soul, my soul, from one body to another. And it's not necessarily based on the human, body, but it could even be any form of body. So it includes the tiniest of insects to the largest of mammals. And so you might say, well, Emma, why, why is that somehow? How do we agree with that then? Um, I think what we would say is that we are in this kind of similar endless cycle, aren't we, of suffering and injustice here on this earth. Um, and I guess for many of us here today, certainly I couldn't include myself in that, we can't really claim to be suffering, you know, like really, really suffering. But historically, this is really significant in India and also in Africa. And just to give you some figures, around 60% of India's 1.3 billion people survive on less than $3 a day. And that's the median poverty line that the World Bank sets. 21% um, or more than 250 million survive on less than $2 a day. So if you put that another way, an Oxfam report in 2017 published that the richest 10% of Indians control more than 80% of the nation's wealth. So that equates to 16 people, their wealth is equal to the wealth of 600 million people. And those figures are really startling when you think about that kind of level of suffering and the disparity of um, wealth versus poverty. So, so why then is the soul trapped in samsara? And it's because of karma. So what you do in this life basically has a bearing in the next. I guess a lot of us have heard of this notion of karma before. It's simple cause and effect. So a good deed is going to lead to a beneficial effect, whereas a bad deed is going to lead to a future harmful effect. But this isn't just about actions and consequences, it's also about moral reasons or the intention behind those reasons. So for example, if I want to give Burns 5,000 shillings, but I do it because I know he's my pastor and I want him to like me, or because I want to make myself look good, then I can still produce bad karma because my intentions behind it are not positive, they're not good. And so Christianity agrees that actually what happens on earth does have an eternal bearing and our actions do have consequence. So Hebrews 9, 27 says, we are destined to die once and after that we will face judgment. 
So although we don't believe in this kind of cyclical journey of what happens to the soul, what we can acknowledge is that we are in a fallen world. We are living amongst injustice and, in and suffering. Surely we will die. One day we will face judgment with God. The third point is that the ultimate goal, so the ultimate goal of a Hindu is to achieve something called moksha. And this is really the emancipation of the cycle of samsara, the end, the termination of samsara. So we've completed the cycle of reincarnation and we've now transcended the need for future physical lifetimes. We're in a state of complete emotional freedom and non-attachment. And you might have heard the word nirvana. It's a similar kind of thing. So for Christians, our ultimate path is really to live finally in heaven with Jesus, which obviously has nothing to do with what we do on this earth, our works, anything like that, but really about putting our faith in Jesus, the fact that we need a savior. We're in need of a savior. But we look forward to the heaven when we will be reunited with him. So how do we get to moksha? How do Hindus get to moksha? There are many ways, but the three that I wanted to pick up are the three key ones here on the next slide. The first is dharma, works. The second is bhakti, devotion. And the third is jnana, which is knowledge. And the first two, so the devotion and the deeds, the works, are said to be practiced first because actually to gain the knowledge, the yana, is actually very difficult. And I want to just look at these three in turn. So first, dharma. This means doing good deeds for no personal gain other than to serve. So we only do it for service. The Bhagavad Gita, which is a very important text, a sacred text followed by Hindu says, therefore giving up attachment, perform actions as a matter of duty. For by working without being attached to the fruits, one attains the supreme. So by good deeds, by serving others, by caring for others, by demonstrating love and generosity, Hindus can then achieve moksha. Gandhi says, infinite striving is to be the best is man's duty. It is its own reward. Everything else is in God's hands. And I don't know if you know any Hindus personally or have had any interaction with Hindus, but my personal experience is that Hindus reflect this so well. I think they demonstrate it often better than I do as a Christian. They tend to be very generous, really servant-hearted, very kind, really selfless with everything that they have. I just wanted to touch on the next slide in terms of the caste system. So we've all heard probably of the caste system in India. Um, the Bhagavad Gita adopted a fourfold system through Krishna, which was to distinguish one's qualities and functions. And this originally was based on ability rather than on birthright but it later changed in the laws of Manu, uh, which was adopted around 5 BC. So Brahmins, you see at the top, they were the kind of the lords of the castes. They were the priests, the highly intellectuals, and they were said to represent the god Brahma, his head. And so it's a kind of top-down system through to the Shudras, which you can see, who did all the kind of menial jobs, and they were said to be Brahma's feet. And then outside the caste system, you can see the very bottom there, outside of that pyramid, are the untouchables. 
And they were really seen to be the lowest in society. So in terms of jobs, they may do things like uh, street sweeping, maybe um, cleaning up um, human or animal waste, dealing with dead bodies, that kind of thing. And there was a rule that forbid, traditionally, movement among these castes. Um, they were largely segregated. For example, the Brahmins wouldn't be able to accept food or drink uh, from the Shudras. But today in India, there is a, a, a much more of a mix and an interchangeable um, uh, mix between all the different castes. In fact, the constitution specifically bans discrimination on the base, uh, basis of caste. Although there are some families, I guess, when it comes to marriage, who may be thinking about the caste that they come from. And in India's history, and I guess it still exists to some extent today, there has obviously been some abuse of the privileged towards the lower castes. And so this whole system may seem very primitive to us when we look at it just like this, coldly. But I think we should not forget the role that has been played in the name of Christianity in our history as well. So things like the Crusades, colonialism, the slave trades. I don't think we can really point our finger um, when we have a, a bad history as well. And I think even less stark, I think it's also good that we pause to think any, of any hierarchies that we may have built in our church, in the church, or that we may place amongst ourselves. Um, it was said in communion today, you know, the, Jesus said, love your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, and that all the other commandments turn among these two, on these two. But then who is our neighbor? In reality, are we really dissimilar in our thinking? Here in Africa, we can elevate our pastors, no, to become like mini gods, not in this church, but it's such a, it's such a thing, isn't it, that we, we really want to elevate them to be like something so important. And me, day to day, I'd much rather associate with the educated or those with similar interests or those with similar worldviews than me, than the homeless, than the illiterate, than those who have different worldviews to me so-called untouchables. I wonder whether we are married, do we open our homes up to uh, the single people in the church? If I have a family and I have children, do I open up my home to those that don't? Gandhi was intrigued by Christianity. And in reading the gospels, Gandhi was really impressed with Jesus. And so he wanted to know one, um, more about Jesus. So one Sunday morning, he decided that he was gonna go to one of the churches in Calcutta. And upon seeking entrance to the church sanctuary, he was stopped by the ushers. And he was told that he wasn't welcome, nor would he be allowed to attend the particular church because it was for high caste uh, Indians and whites only. And he was neither high caste nor was he white. And with this act, Gandhi rejected the Christian faith, faith never again to consider the claims of Jesus. And it was due to this experience that Gandhi famously, famously declared and said, I would have considered becoming a Christian because of your Christ, but Christians put me off. It's a fairly damning indictment, isn't it? Um, but if we do compare the way of works on the next slide, thankfully, the way of Christ, sorry, thankfully for us, our good deeds are not our salvation. We recognize that we are sinful in nature. You know, like karma, our prospects are not very good. So we understand that we can do nothing to achieve holiness on our own. We have to rely solely on the grace of God. 
And so God chose to do something about our human condition by becoming human to redeem us once and for all, for all our sins, past, present, and future. And he took on, if you like, the kind of bad karma of the human race because God knew that you can't have enough good karma to overcome the bad karma. And so God credited to us his good karma through Jesus' death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace we've been saved and not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it's through faith that Jesus says we are saved and nothing more. But although our good deeds don't attract good circumstances, we can also recognize as believers that we are covered by God's goodness. Romans 8.28 says, in all, good, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I think all of us can attest to God's goodness and his blessing in our lives beyond that which we deserve. And even in these difficult circumstances that we're living in today with COVID and pandemics and wearing face masks, I think all of us can point to the fact that God continues to bless us and to be with us and to be close to us. So as we get to know God more, we begin to reflect the life of Jesus. And Jesus said that he came to serve, not to be served. And that's really where our works fit in, that we would also just role model, we'd reflect the way that Jesus lived. So we looked at, um, we looked at works. Now we're going to look at bhakti, devotion. This is the most common in India. So this is the notion that there is one God, the absolute divine, Brahman, which is manifested in many gods. And in that sense, I guess we think of um, Hinduism as being a polytheistic faith, but I think Hindus would say that it's a monotheistic faith. Hindus worship different gods and goddesses, but they embody Brahman based on what is individually appealing to them. So Brahman is transcendent. It's the very space, the entire universe with billions of galaxies, the interstellar spaces, and much, much more. He is incomprehensible. He is unapproachable. He's unknowable. He's in the ordinary senses, something that intellect cannot fathom. But through the various deities, through the gods and the goddesses, there are windows into understanding Brahman. There are millions of gods and goddesses, but the most well-known I've just put down there, the first is Brahma, and it's different to Brahman. He created the universe, but isn't the universe itself. And often these gods come alongside goddesses, and so Brahma's um, goddess uh, is Sarawathi, the goddess of learning. Then there is Vishnu, the preserver, And Vishnu preserves the world until it's eventually going to be destroyed by Shiva. And then Shiva is the destroyer, and he's the picture there. Um, He has many avatars, uh, and he has a third eye, which you might might be able to see on the the screen, that when his eye is open and someone's looking at him, then uh, looking at the eye, then they will be destroyed. And one day he is going to be the destroyer of the universe to prepare for the renewal of a cycle of time. Um, And he's got a son called Ganesha who removes obstacles. So you can pray to Ganesha if you want some obstacle um, to be removed in your life. 
So Hindus may dedicate a particular day of worship for a particular or a specific god. So for example, on Monday, uh, they may pray to Shiva. On Friday, they may pray to Ganesha. Or it could be for a particular reason. So if I'm a woman, I'm trying to get pregnant or I want a husband, I might pray to a particular goddess who might be able to achieve that for me. There can be worship through statues or idols. And some of these take place in terms of animal form. They look like animals, or it could be a more like a human-like form. And Hindus can worship them in temples or at home. They can also make offerings, sometimes in food, with food or with money, often to at attract good circumstances or blessings. The Hindus also follow sacred texts, just like we follow the Bible. Um, and the key ones are the Vedas, the four Vedas. And these are a mixture of songs and of prayers, but they're also of rituals and of charms and of curses as well. Then come the Upanishads, which are a sort of sequel to the Vedas. They were written around 800 to 500 BC, and they're broadly based on philosophy. Then there are four other texts, which are still important, and I've quoted from one already, the Bhagavad Gita, which translates literally as the Song of the Divine. And the Bhagavad Gita is actually based really about how to live your best life, your dharma. Um, and it takes place on a battlefield where Aryuna is torn between his duty to fight, so he wants to fight for justice, but he also has love for his kinsmen who he has to fight. And he becomes dejected, and he debates with Krishna, the avatar, that no war can be justified on any grounds. But Krishna convinces him that he has to fight, and so he ends up fighting. And so I think it's good to, to just note that I guess there's no claim from Hindus that any of the Hindu gods are perfect or sinless, um, and Krishna is an example of that. And finally, in terms of devotion, Hindus practice yoga, so stillness, meditation. I think sometimes we limit the, the notion of yoga to exercise or, you know, good breathing or, you know, strengthening the core or whatever it is. Um, but for Hindus, it's so much more than that. No? So they do it not through devote, not just through devotion, but also um, through dharma and jnana as well. So they, are, they learn how to be still. They learn how to be reunified with Brahman. So in terms of what do Hindus believe about Jesus, well, Hindus believe that Jesus was an avatar, that he was an empowered incarnation among other gods. But we, in terms of who we believe Jesus is, we believe he is obviously the son of God who came to earth in human form and lived a perfect life, a sinless life, so that we would know how to live, but also with the ultimate goal that he would save us from our sins. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made Christ who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Unlike Brahman, we can also know God personally through Jesus. We can have a relationship with Jesus. And as he hung on the cross and he, as he breathed his last breath, the curtain in the temple, no, it torn in two. And the place that was once forbidden the, the Holy of Holies, the place where we were not allowed to enter because of our disobedience and our sin, in that moment, everything changed because Jesus gave us direct access by taking upon himself all our sin, all our shame, all our suffering. And Jesus said in John 15 that he no longer 
calls us servants because this, a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but rather he calls us his friends. And after ascending back into heaven, he left us then with the Holy Spirit so that we would forever experience his presence living within and amongst us. So through worship and prayer, we can enter God's presence. So as we draw near to him, the Bible says that he draw nears to us. And I think we should also, again, just recognize, you know, that our acts of service, our works, mean far less to him than just being in his presence. And after all, this is the first commandment, no, to love our God with all of our heart. And I think Hindus have really mastered the art of meditation through yoga, through, through stillness. Although it's used for different purposes, I wonder whether we can reflect on our own lives for a moment. Because I think we often run the risk of crowding out God, even for good things like acts of service, for, <clears throat> excuse me, for loving and caring for other people. We, we become too busy and we forget to enjoy our relationship with God. Francis Chan recently said, in the Christian church, we have become busier and busier. We're not sober-minded. We're taking in so much. We have no self-control. It has to start with, wow, I was created in the image of the true iron God. But how many people wake up in the morning and have this reverent awe? And because we don't have that and we're not spending time marveling in silence at God and our oneness with him. So he suggests that we get alone with God, let him open you up. You may find issues and he may find issues in you that you need to know are wrong. You may have thought you're just going in for a checkup and he cuts you open. But we've got to get back to getting people into the presence of God. Okay, so that is bhakti, devotion. The final one is yana the third way to moksha. And this is very popular in the West. So this is like the celebrities, they love this kind of thing. And it's um, this notion which is called Advaita Vedanta, which is um, means non-duality. So Advaita means non-duality. And it's the knowledge that we as humans are neither spirit, nor body, nor intellect, nor ego. We are the universe. We are part of the visible and the invisible, but the problem is our ignorance. <clears throat> it's the current state that we're in. So maya, which is the illusion, is that we are distinct from the universe. That's what we are led to believe. But the reality is everything is one, that we are one with, with Brahman. The Bhagavad Gita says, you need great determination and faith. Abandon all material desires, sensual desires, all desires of the false self. Step by step, gradually, one's mind should translike be fixed upon the self and nothing else. Once the mind is fixed, you will attain the highest happiness, oneness with Brahman, a peaceful mind, free of sin. So I have my prop. This is my cup of tea. Um, and so <clears throat> if you can imagine, it's half full. Sorry, it's not um, see-through. But imagine that my cup of tea here is half full here. So my, where my thumb is is where the line is. And so there's tea at the bottom. And then there's, it's empty there. So where is the space? Where's the air? 
Yeah, so you'd say it's on top. But the, the, what, what Brahman says, also what Advaita says, is actually the space is undifferentiated in, in reality. You know, the space is everywhere. So we are only limited arbitrarily. We're separating the, the air just from the bottle. I led you, I led you to look at this, uh, look, look at this, and I asked you the question, where is the air? But actually the space is everything, and we're just arbitrarily focusing on the, on the cup. Just as the world focuses itself narrowly instead of the universe, which is Brahman. Does that make sense? <laughs> um, so, um, this is the hardest yoga, and I think it's good that people don't really fully understand, but um, it is the hardest yoga to achieve moksha in this, year, in this way. It's highly intellectual, it's, it's, um, it's practiced over many, many years. And so only those who progress to the top of this highest spiritual pinnacle can really achieve enlightenment in this way. But if we contrast this then with Christianity, well, we would say that we are made, the Bible tells us that we are made in the image of God, but we can't call ourselves God. We are not the creator, but we are his handiwork. And that Christianity is really not something just for the elite, but it's for the very least of us. Romans 5 says, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And in John 1, it says, yet to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So our version of enlightenment then must mean an understanding that we are in Jesus and that we have been given a new identity. We are adopted sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we are his image bearers. 2 Corinthians 5 said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so with that, we then live in freedom. We are totally under his grace. We don't have to strive to get to heaven, worrying about our good deeds or our bad deeds. Our salvation is completely free and a free gift from God. John 8 says, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. <clears throat> and as Christians, we also look forward to a heaven when we are finally living with God and we can live face to face with our maker. Revelation 21 says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. So our mission is not then that we're going to be more and more enlightened, but it's to enable others to experience the revelation of God's love and his grace. And last week, Kelvin spoke about, um, you know, how can we interact? How can we engage uh, with Islam, with, uh, with Muslims? How can we um, talk to them? And I don't think it's any different to how we engage with Hindus. Our conversations always need to be framed in love and respect and in honor 
which is the same way that Jesus did that when he spoke to every person that he interacted with. So one final point, uh, really just for praying for this talk and in preparation for this talk, my sense was this just this point on enlightenment and what does that mean for us as believers? And I just really believe that God wants to remind us about his vision for each of our lives because the vision for your life is far smaller than the vision that God has for your life. I'm just gonna say that again. The vision that God has for your life is far, far greater than the vision for your own life. And I feel that there are some people here, or maybe online, who feel a sense of kind of disqualification. So this word disqualification was just coming up in my mind over and over again, from being counted or accepted. And maybe it's stuff that you've done wrong, but maybe it's also stuff that people have told you in your past, people of influence, that have made you think little of yourselves, you know, like the kind of untouchables or the outcasts. And I believe that the enemy uses this really powerful weapon against the church by believers thinking that they are weak and are worth nothing this kind of pauper mentality in turn, in t instead of the kind of princes and the princesses as the king of kings and the lord of lords as we are part of his family now. We listen to the lies of the enemy as we look at the weakness of our own strength rather than standing in the infinite power of the Holy Spirit that has been given to each one of us. Bill Johnson says, we have reduced our Lord's Great Commission down to something more tangible and comfortable, which is ministering to individuals rather than to nations. We naturally target economically poor and broken individuals rather than individuals with influence and status. God has given the church a great call and it therefore takes great people to accomplish it. Guys, I'm not saying that we can't love on an individual level, but the point is that our vision, the kind of impact that we think we can make, or the kind of impact that we've been told we can make, or um, the people that we think we are, um, or we've been told who we are, is not what God says we are. We shy away from even imagining anything bigger or that we're capable of anything more because we're standing in our authority and not in the authority of the God Almighty. So guys, today I just feel like we need to reclaim God's vision and our identity where Jesus said in Mark 16, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. So how do we do that? I think we just be reminded of what was said earlier, going back into his presence, devotion, being in a place of reverence and worship, because that's where we're reminded of what God is capable of. And then we can step out in the boldness and the confidence that he has given us as sons and daughters of the living God. Guys, let's pray. Maybe we can stand. Father God, we just want to thank you for the opportunity to learn briefly of Hinduism and in the series of other faiths, Lord, we thank you. Lord, help us to demonstrate your love as we interact with those of other faiths so people would be drawn into the glorious name of Jesus. Lord, for each person feeling of little worth or of value, Lord, I pray that you would show through your Holy Spirit your love. 
thank you that Jesus died willingly on the cross for these people, not in vain, but that they would know how valuable they are to you through the price that you paid on the cross. And God, I pray that you would reveal or renew your vision over each person's life here today or watching online. I pray that we would stand in the power of the Holy Spirit where the reality in our lives would reflect the words of Jesus, where he said, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and even greater things than than these because I am going back to the Father. And Father, you have such an incredible plan for your world, for Kenya, for this city and for each of us. So I pray that you would give us new eyes, your ears, your heart, your vision, so that nations would be transformed by the greatness of your love. We ask this in your name. Amen.